Do you know who he is? The guy in the, you know. Max Kazic. And yes, I knew him a long time ago in Metropolis. You have any idea who might have done this to him? Not at all. What about your old friend Jude Royce? I doubt it could have been him, Clark. Why? Because he's been dead for three years. Somebody save me indeed. Hello and welcome to Farm to Fable, a Smallville rewatch fancast. I am your forever host, Michael, and I'm also the host of the RPG Academy podcast, where I talk mostly about role-playing games, but all tabletop gaming in general. I also organize a three-day gaming convention held in Dayton, Ohio, each November. Before we get started, please be advised that Farm to Fable may include adult language and reference adult behavior. Please consider us PG-13 in regards to content acceptability for your young ones. Also, this is your spoiler warning. While we will focus on each episode week to week, our discussions may and likely will reference the entire series run and the wider Superman mythos. You can email our show at smallvillefancast at gmail.com with any comments, concerns, or questions. Please follow us on Twitter at Farm2Fable. And join our Facebook group page at Smallville Farm to Fable. With all of that out of the way, let's meet today's co-host. Hello, it's Kaloum, proud owner of five Smallville DVD box set in French, and Superman Returns apologist. I also really like Superman Returns. I think it's much better than it gets credit for. I mean, it's it's got its its issues, but it's probably my all-time favorite Superman action scene in a in a movie. Well, we might have to get into that again later. But for now, let me be the first to welcome you back to Smallville. So, Caleb, this is your second time as guest co-host. Uh, I'm sure you're aware we have started to release episodes now. So episode one and two have been released to the public to rave. Re- OK, so we've had a few reviews, mostly from people I know, uh, but I, I'm happy with that so far. Still two episodes out. There's a lot of ground to cover with getting people to know about the show. Uh, so if anyone is listening to this, please let someone else know. Tell a friend, share. Uh, but just keep listening. Let us know what you think because we really appreciate it. Yeah, and do it Do it also if you're in Great Britain because there are different stores on iTunes. So you need at least three reviews in each of the stores to have a, a proper rating. I left one of the reviews for Great Britain, but it's still missing two. Yes, that would be fantastic. And again, ratings are great. I will never complain about ratings. Reviews are better, but ratings literally take seconds. Like you just click, hit a button, click, and you're done. So if you want to do a rating for now, maybe come back after you've listened to a few episodes to give us a review. Anyway, I don't want to get too bogged down to that. I'm excited, so I'm, I'm, it's on top of mind. But I want to talk about our Pass the Torch question. So last week, Maria asked, if you could use an object powered by kryptonite to give you super abilities, what would that object be? And and to clarify, because I may have written that question wrong, we've seen kryptonite powers be delivered in many different ways. People have gotten it from oil from a rose. They've got it from bugs. They've got it from ink, t- tattoo ink. They had it from uh, vegetables that were blended into a smoothie. So the <laughs> delivery system can be anything. So if you were to get powers from kryptonite-infused object... What do you think your object would be? 
I think it would be a good old filter coffee machine. Mm. And uh, that would help me be hyper productive at work, like the mo the best manager you ever had. And I would climb the ranks of LexCorp until I reached the top and then something would happen and it would be my downfall. Ooh, okay, all right. So I, I have two. One's a cheat because it's the one you suggested on your first question. It would be dice, you know, uh, a polyhedral set for D&D or other RPGs that I would be able to play with. But at this exact moment, I am well into a Mass Effect replay. I've already beat Mass Effect 1 again. I've started a new game. I'm loving Mass Effect. So I'm thinking somehow through maybe the controller... So like it's refurbished or maybe the batteries have kryptonite infused power. And so just something about using the controller over and over would be my delivery system. Hey, dude, you need to try those new uh, controllers. The frame rate is crazy. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. but uh... No, it does not. But that's okay. Neither does Smallville at times. So uh, let's now open our Smallville yearbook and see who our notable guest stars are. Hey, Clark. Look who came to check up on you. Cameron Dye returns in way of flashback as Sam Phelan. Corinne Numek appears as Jude Royce. Kinda. Kinda. Uh, also, I know Corin as Parker Lewis. Were you ever familiar with the show Parker Lewis Can't Lose? Yes, yes. Parker Lewis was actually broadcasted in France. So I was exposed to that uh, as a kid. Uh, I, I don't remember the name of the characters. Of course, I remember uh, Kubiak, who later the actor showed up in ER. And um, But uh, I was a big fan of the the character with the, the big trench coat and he would have a submarine periscope in it and, and things like that. Yeah, I was not the biggest uh, Parker Lewis fan, but a friend of mine was. Like every time I was at his house, that's what he would be watching. So I kind of through osmosis know something. I know the swatch watches, everybody synchronize your swatches. But every time that guy was on screen, I just kept thinking, why is Parker Lewis doing this? I don't understand. Well, maybe maybe you need to do a second fan cast about Parker <laughs> Lewis, and uh, we can investigate that. Uh, that you know, once we get through all two hundred and thirty episodes of, of Smallville, we, we'll we'll consider that. We got some margin. Yeah, <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, so, as far as additional guest co-hosts this week, we also have Judd Taylor as Amanda Rothman and Makasha Armstrong as Mask as Max Kasich. So now it's time to grab a copy of this week's Daily Planet and check the bylines to see who brought us this week's episode. I mean, that's a story that could land you a byline on the front page of the Daily Planet. So this is Season 1, Episode 14-0. The date of original airing was March 12, 2002. The character of Superman was created by Jerry Seigel and Joe Schuster, and Smallville was created by Alfred Goff and Miles Miller. There are three credited writers for this episode. Story by credits go to Alfred and Miles and teleplay by Mark Verhaden, who we've covered on a previous episode. The director was Michael Kettleman. Kettleman has three Smallville directing credits, including this episode, as well as Drone and Extinction, with Extinction having the highest rating per EMDB. His other directing credits include Quantum Leap, oh, I loved Quantum Leap, uh, X-Files, Space Above and Beyond, ER, Dark Angel, Scandal, Rizzoli and Isles. 
and the recently announced Cowboy Bebop TV miniseries. Mm, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Caleb, are you now ready to explore the Kawachi Caves and get a glimpse of where we came from as well as where we may be going? Please hold my hand, but yeah, I'm going. As Lex helps Lana prepare for the reopening of the Smallville Theater, the Talon, as a coffee shop, a man from Lex's past named Jude Royce arrives in town and begins stalking Lex, wanting to hold him in conjunction with a shooting death at Club Zero in Metropolis three years ago that Lex may have been responsible for. Meanwhile, Chloe looks into Clark's past as an adopted child, while Martha and Jonathan try to thwart Chloe's moves. Well, that's great, but it doesn't really tell us what we need to know. So let's dig a little deeper into these caves and ask for the important questions. Does this episode feature a vehicle crashed or otherwise destroyed? Not this time. Vandalized, technically, but not destroyed. <laughs> Does this episode feature someone falling unconscious for any reason? Yes. Uh... Does this episode feature someone in a hospital bed? No. No. Does this episode feature Clark telling or showing someone besides his forever crush Lana his powers or abilities? No, he keeps things well hidden this week. Maybe. We'll talk about something in the future. Yeah, 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 yeah. Does this episode feature Clark using his powers irresponsibly? Oh, yeah, actually, that's the one. Actually, no, but doesn't he, though? Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. Does Clark casually break and enter a business or residence? Yes, he does. Does this episode feature a moment where a character travels a seemingly long way to have a short conversation and then leave? Yes. Who, who was that? I don't remember. There, I think there were multiple. Oh, wow. Does this episode feature a conversation between two people where one person has their back to the other and is weirdly talking over the shoulder? Yes, I love these. My favorite. Was the person talking weirdly over his shoulder? Lex. Yes, yes, yes. It was Lex. Does this episode feature a particularly thirsty moment for one or more of our characters? I've never been so thirsty. Yes, a, a thirsty time at uh, Smallville High. Does this episode feature a moment with a needle drop wherein a contemporary song perfectly sums up a character's thoughts and or desires? No, we have some needle drops, but none of them have lyrics that really showcase the scene. Maybe by boot, but not specifics. Unless you consider the villain himself playing a song, which kind of sets uh I mean, it's more a plot point than a... Right. And I wouldn't consider that a contemporary song. It wasn't something played on Top 40 radio. It was just made for... Oh, yeah, good point. That's a, that's a, an aspect of the question which uh, I missed. And then does this episode feature a classic Smallville leap of logic wherein the characters jump to a correct conclusion around who or what is behind some mysterious event with little to no actual information to base such conclusions? No, not really this week. No, again, just kind of some actual detective work. Yeah, All right. good job. So, so now we have a clear roadmap of where we're going. So let's use our x-ray vision and look closely at this week's episode. In our cold open, Lex has been captured and forced to revisit a fateful night in Club Zero that ended in tragedy. But his captor doesn't believe what Lex is saying is true. So uh, are we already in the club? That's already the flashback? Yeah, yeah. so, so the, the, the cold open starts with them basically yeah. walking up to the club. And he's like, who are you? Are you new here? And then... Wait, no, the co doesn't the cold open starts with Lex hanging by his feet? So, he, yeah, he's a, he is upside down. Uh, but then, then there's a transition. There's a it transitions can, into the. Yeah. So we got a flash forward, flash back to the club. Yeah, it does. It, yeah, we yeah we because we because technically we flash back after the cold open to like a week before the cold open, 
But in the cold open, we flash back three years to the Club Zero. It is a bit of a confusing structure. Well, I, I thought it was quite legible, but uh, I always liked the, uh, you know, when you have someone who tells you uh, there are several instances and jokes of that, you got someone telling a story uh, taking place in the past, in the past, and then within that story, someone is telling another story, and you 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 go back and deeper, deeper in the inception. But coming back to the episode, uh, so Lex enters the club. Uh, Kazish tells him. She's cute uh, about Amanda and uh, Lex replies uh, in a very Lex fashion. She's engaged. And I thought it was great because it gives you information about Amanda and it's, it's about Lex. You're not quite sure what he means by that. Does he mean, yeah, no, it's, it's just platonic right. between the two of us or is he bragging that he's bringing a, a beautiful woman who's also engaged? Yeah, that's, it's one of the things about this, this episode in particular, like as a whole, I feel like multiple times it, it tries to lay out something about Lex, but then subverts its own message. And it's just kind of interesting. And I agree because like when you first watch it, the assumption is that he's bringing an engaged girl on a date, that he's, you know, interested in her, but she's engaged and he doesn't care, which isn't true. But then it, Kinda is true, as we will see in just a couple moments. Um, I had a note about the very subtle shot of the K ring on Kasich's hand, just because we'll need to make sure without a shadow of a doubt that we recognize that hand slash ring later. I missed that shot the first time I watched the episode. So when we saw the K on the hand, I was like, is that a threat towards me? Is it Kalum? <laughs> Otherwise, very good music in the the club. God is a DJ from Faithless, 1998. Very good. I, I was not familiar with that song. Uh, I thought it was interesting that Lex drinks apple martinis, or at least he does in this situation. I think everybody does back then. I think it was a thing. Uh, see, I, I'm not a drinker, so I've I've never had any martini, much less an apple one. But it, it just seemed like an odd choice for Lex. But you're, maybe it was just the time. Again, it was three years ago from 2002, so this was 1998, I guess, or 99, somewhere in there. Uh, yeah, it would be 99. So uh, if the the episode is 2002, it's three years ago, so it's 99. And even the song is a it's it's a 1998 song, so it's someone did their homework there. <laughs> Uh, so what we learn is basically that uh, Amanda is engaged to a guy named Jude, and Lex, it seems on purpose, brought her specifically to this club and then brought her specifically to the VIP room so that she would catch Royce in the act of being unfaithful. <laughs> Seriously unfaithful, like overtly unfaithful. <laughs> So, so maybe that's what the, again, I don't think the lyrics of the song match, but it's from a band called Faithless. And she sees that Royce, Royce is being not faithful to her. So maybe that's the connection. Uh, but he's basically got a girl on each arm, uh, in this club. He told her he was out of town. And so Lex set this whole thing up so that she would catch on and see what was true. So my question to you though is, why did he do it this way? Let's assume that Lex's methods, his methods are pure. He really was just wants Amanda to know that her boyfriend is a jerk, doesn't want her to get married to someone who's going to be a serial philanderer. Why did he do it this way? Could he not have like just told her? Could he not have like had someone at the club like literally get on like like a 
video phone and like record him at the exact moment. There are so many ways to do this that would not have involved the confrontation. And do you think that's just Lex being Lex? I think you, you can have a, and that's the beauty of this episode. You can have a, a whole spectrum of, uh, interpretation. So the, the most, f- uh, sort of honest Lex, uh, white knight Lex you could imagine is that, uh, he got the information, uh, randomly that Jude was in the club with ladies and he decided then to take Amanda, who was keen to, to follow him in a club, which is a bit weird, but he said, hey, let's go to this club. Uh, he didn't tell her. He, he just heard about it last minute that Jude was in this club and maybe he spent months telling Amanda that Jude was a bad person and she should not trust him and she was, uh, she, she wouldn't believe it because she loved Jude so much. So she needed, sort of a, ch- a shock to get out of a daydreaming with Jude. So that's Lex being the, the most white knight. Now, if you go at the opposite end of that, the whole thing is a complete setup. Even the two women who are with Jude, Lex set them up with Jude. It's the, the whole thing. He, he even gave the, the address of the club to Jude and he said, oh, you should go there, have some fun before getting married. And then he went there with Amanda. So... I really know, I have no idea where our Alex actually is. And that's kind of the beauty of it. Yeah. I, I feel like it's more towards the white knight side. Like in, like in my head canon, he already knew that Royce was a serial philanderer. He probably had been out with him on nights without Amanda and just saw that this is how he acted and he didn't want Amanda to marry him. But Lex being Lex, he wanted a confrontation. Like he wanted to be able to look Royce and, and be, I'm the one that did this. You know, he wanted that sort of recognition that I set this up, not him because he was, Jude was a bad dude, but that he arranged all this to happen to get Amanda to break up with him. Cause he kind of even says, you know, you did this to yourself. He, he looks him in the eye after Amanda pulls off her ring, which is another like slow motion shot of pulling her ring off, which kind of confused me and I'll talk a little bit more about it later is because we have a very subtle slow-mo shot on the K on Kasich's hand that comes back later the first time I watched this I kind of thought that Amanda was going to come back and like because it seemed weird that they would do another slow-mo ring finger shot after they'd done the one with Kasich and then when we see Kasich come back I thought oh okay they're setting me up to realize something but that is in fact not at all what happened uh, and also i want to mention that there are a couple thirsty moments in this ep- uh, in this opening one in general to the camera there are girls who are like wearing bikinis and they have like stripes painted on them almost kind of like those old like 70s um but then also there are a couple girls at the club who who are like basically eyeing lex up and down like he's a prime slab of meat and there's even like a quick line where amanda says something like if you weren't with me i think you'd you'd be able to find somebody. So I kind of counted that as a thirsty moment as well. It is, yeah. That's a thirsty place, a Club Zero. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Jude gets upset at Lex. They get into a scuffle. And then this is our first of what is sort of like a Rashomon-esque scene where we see the same scene play out three, maybe four times, each one slightly different until we find out what we assume is the actual real version but we don't actually know that for a fact it's still lex lex tells us every version but we're supposed to believe that the last version is truth uh but in this version jude ends up getting shot by 
oh shit, which one is this? Is this the one where they both have the gun? Or Mac, you know, this is just the one where Max does it himself, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, in the first version, Mac, uh, no, Kasich. Yeah, it's Max Kasich is his name, or Kasich. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. uh, Max Kasich, uh, does it. Uh, he, sh- he shoots, uh, Jude in the club, and, uh, upstairs he, woo, party! Still dancing. Yeah, there's like people all around, like, some of the people seem to notice, and then <laughs> other people do not at all, and they're still just dancing in the background. Woo! crazy zero zero consequence yeah pretty pretty much and then the very you know the very end of the cold open is lex is still he's upside down he's in the straight jacket this the person that looks like jude royce who we just saw get shot has a gun to his head and it it pulls back and then it goes to dark and uh, we hear him say something about you know you're you're gonna die nobody can save you and then there's a gunshot so even though I knew Lex wasn't dying here, that was a very effective cold open. I was very much into what the hell was happening. It's a very good cold, cold open. And uh, as a podcaster, uh, when I'm not a guest on a podcast, I can definitely appreciate a nice segue. So nobody can save you this time. Somebody, somebody save me. <laughs> uh, so now we're in our first act, which is a flashback to the cold open. Yeah. Uh, because I think it's a week <laughs> before Lex being hung upside down. Does it say, or does it leave you dry? Like, uh, yeah, no, there, I, there was a, a thing at the bottom, a little cry on the bottom that says, I think it said a week earlier or something like that. I didn't go the Witcher style, like just sort it out. Uh. <laughs> so a school assignment puts Clark's nebulous childhood into Chloe's sights. Lana is paid a visit at the Talon by Jude Royce, and he tells her to stay away from Lex. Lex arrives and is visited by Kasich from Club Zero, who says he's seen Jude. Lex says he doesn't believe Jude is alive, but seems shaken by what's going on. So did you have anything from the act first act you wanted to talk about? I mean, going back, you know, you, you said you finally released your first episode, and I listened to them. And you said one thing I never realized about Smallville. I, I definitely realized that the actors looked and were much older than the character they were supposed to depict but i did not realize the character were actually supposed to be that young i always picture i don't know you know i'm not familiar with the the school system in the u.s so i picture that they were i don't know 18 maybe 19 but in the episode um uh with you i listened to you were saying that the uh, Lana was 14 and maybe the others are, are something like Yeah, they're supposed years. to be basically 14 years old. If, if they're freshmen in high school, they're going to be between three and 15. And I believe 14 is. So I got this information only after watching a first time this episode. So I rewatched it since then and it made the scenes with Chloe somewhat better to watch. I, I mean, they made more sense. It doesn't work for me with the actors, but Chloe, Chloe is unbearable with a assignment with the 18 years old i find it unbearable if i was picturing a 15 14 year old girl okay i get it it's kind of cute you know the, the child who tries to be and one day i'm gonna be a reporter that's cute but chloe adult actor i just <laughs> from the first moment i'm like chill it's a homework. <laughs> Nobody cares. So this is like the perfect storm of Clark's 
somewhat mysterious nature. Chloe's definitely in love with him. She now has a legitimate reason to spend time with him, get to know him better. And it does, you know, it kind of amps up her reporter skills. And when this first started, I remember thinking, this is going to be funny. Yeah. This is going to be played for laughs. You know, Chloe's going to be trying to dig and there's not going to be anything she can find or what she finds doesn't make any sense. But it doesn't play funny at all. It actually turns kind of dark over the course of the episode. And once again, Clark is a jerk here because he is literally doing exactly the same thing Chloe is doing. He's doing it to Lex and this whole thing at Club Zero. He's looking into his past against his Lex's wishes because he's nosy and he kind of wants to help. Chloe is nosy, kind of wants to know Clark better. And he gets super pissed off at her while doing exactly the same thing to someone else hypocrite much yeah the, 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 there's actually we will come to that but there's an i remember an exchange between lex and clark which was hmm the irony <laughs> so we will get back to that um uh i'm an architect maybe uh, i don't know if i've uh, i'd like to mention that now and then <laughs> i don't know if i mentioned it on this show but uh, i must say i had my fair share of interaction with contractors on specifically on refurbishment projects and this one is very intense. <laughs> I mean, you reserve <laughs> about the, about the talent. Uh, if you want to have the honor of saying the line, I just love that line. You resurrect the past. You get the problems that come with it. I mean, that's basically the episode, right? <laughs> yeah. That should have been the episode synopsis. In hindsight, it makes more sense since unless I mixed up people. He's the actual brother of Jude, so so I guess he's setting up things. But no, so he is the brother of Amanda. Of Amanda? No. Yeah, he's Amanda's brother, not Jude's brother. Oh, okay. I really should have finished that second watching. But <laughs> being a parent, you you don't have the the leisure yeah. of your time. Uh, great mechanics, though. Uh, very good with uh, little engineering. If you need him to fix your your radio in your car, he can do it in uh, half a minute. No problem. Well, so he breaks into a car that we see early. It was basically locked. We heard the little toot toot. <laughs> so the car was locked locked and alarmed. He was able to get in, hook up a CD player to the electrical panel i guess without being caught not in a back lot not a parking lot either in the yeah, middle like of on the street, street. <laughs> broad day so then we see lex pulls up so we kind of jump around a little bit and we see that same hand it's max Kasich hand because we see the ring on it and he's like freaking out because they're never he said we're never supposed to see each other again but he's like i saw jude I, everywhere i go so lex gives him a key to his apartment says i keep an apartment in the city you go there <laughs> But was it, he didn't tell him where it was. No. He didn't say like which which building, the address, what number. He just handed him a, a silver key. Or he could, you know, he could have said something like, "Remember that old place," or "You you you know where I live, right?" Or anything. He, anything. Or he could have said, "You know, I keep an apartment in the city," and hand him a key. But he just says, "I keep an apartment." So it just—it's very secure, it's a, very difficult to find. Here are the keys. No joke. <laughs> Uh, so in between this, uh, so Jude goes to the Talon while, while Lana's in there talking to the contractor, and he asks for an uh, employment application for the assistant manager, and it's basically just an excuse to kind of tell Lana that she should stay away from Lex, 
uh, because when they come into the building, Clark meets Lex outside. Uh, she seems very freaked out. Also, Jude seems to have disappeared. And she says that this guy just came in. He says he knows you and he told me to stay away from you. And Lex is like, well, do you remember his name? One, I'm not sure I buy that she doesn't remember his name. I guess maybe she has a lot going on, but Jude Royce is kind of a, is a memorable name to me. Like, I don't know. I don't know a lot of Judes. Maybe it's just me. And also I immediately think the song, Hey Jude. So like, if I hear that name, it's going to stick in my head. But anyway, so she goes and pulls the application and it says Jude Royce, which kind of freaks Lex out a little bit. It would be, it would be fun. She she would be like, I don't know. It was something like, um, Elena Rigby or, uh, <laughs> strawberry something. I'm not sure. I'm not sure Lex anymore. By the way, I, I love her answer. Oh yeah. Lex is one of the owners. I'm sorry. Lex is one of the owners. One of the owners. <laughs> it's a bit of a violent jump for me from the episode Hothead, where she was a waitress, a very bad waitress. <laughs> And now I jump here and she's the manager of a new coffee place. <laughs> and she's, she's saying that Lex is one of the owners. I'm pretty sure that Lex is the owner. <laughs> That's it. Well, I think, I mean, if, if this was a real situation, you're 100% right. I believe the show at some place uh, in the future explains that in the contract, uh, Lana is given half ownership and so that Lex can't just sell it without her permission. So it, it's all just he, she was given that authority, but it is now her authority. <laughs> but coming back to the idea of how old are they all? It's kind of hilarious because if Lana is fourteen or fifteen, she can't sign legal contract. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's 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 a weird situation. There's there's a there's some contradictions there, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, so Lex goes out, he gets in his car, and this is where the, the CD player that either Jude or the brother of Amanda set up, and it starts playing. I think it's the same song that was playing at Club Zero, but it also has, uh, killer. Like, I think Jude, this guy's, you're a killer. Mother. You're a killer. killer. Uh, your money won't save you, whatever. But, but, but Lex can't figure out how to turn it off because it's not the radio. But couldn't he just turn the car back off? Like the power still coming from the car. <laughs> like if he would have turned the ignition off, it would have stopped it, right? Yeah. Also, so the brother of Amanda, I'm really confused by that, that information, but the brother of Amanda knew what song they played. <laughs> I mean, when, when Amanda recollected, told him the story of what happened. She told him, oh, and they were playing that song by that British DJ called God is a DJ. And he, and he was writing it down, God is a DJ. Okay, <laughs> one day I used that as part of my, of my revenge. Well, you know, you, you can't go half-assed into a revenge. You got to go all the way. And the, the music definitely sets a tone. There's a lot of dedication here, developing skills in uh, being a contractor in plumbing and uh, being able to break into a car. The, the, I want to see the training montage for, for this video. <laughs> uh, and the last thing I just wanted to mention, uh, again, we're jumping around. Uh, anyone's listening, I apologize. We're, we're a little bit uh, off our, our, our game today. But um, I just noted that if Clark really wanted to head Chloe off on the whole assignment, he could have participated. Like the fact that he blew her off is why she gets so tenacious and she goes after the parents. Like if Clark would have just sat down and talked to her for an hour, then it probably would have been over. But the fact that he didn't is why she starts digging into his past. 
because later he throws out, you know, like, I spent one hour with Lana. That's all it took. Well, then why didn't you spend an hour with Chloe? It would have been over, too. Maybe we should jump for that to the next scene, uh, the second act, because we think it's going to be the the meat gotcha. of that scene. Uh, so the second act opens, uh, Chloe got a jump on her assignment by talking to the Kents and started asking questions about Clark's adoption that the Kents would rather not answer. Lex, Lana, and Clark meet up at the talent to find the handyman unconscious and a package left for Lex containing the severed hand of Max Kasich. And we know that because of the big K ring on his finger. K. K like Calum? <laughs> Maybe like Calum. So we've talked about this a couple of times before. You know, if you try to take the reality of the Kent's life. So just for a minute, try to imagine that you have adopted an alien child <laughs> and this alien child has supernatural abilities, you know, speed and strength and everything. How would that just intensify and magnify the pressure that you're under as a parent? And we've talked a little bit about, you know, a couple of things that have happened in the other episodes about how that probably would be difficult and would affect them. <laughs> but we've not yet talked about the adoption. Like when this, when this, story was created which i think was in the 30s the idea of adopting a kid you could be kind of wishy-washy and again i don't know what it was like in, in your country but i'm from a bit i'm from the south like it was not all of that unusual for quote unquote you know a, a young girl to get impregnated she goes and lives with her aunt for a few months comes back with a child that she's quote unquote adopted that that's not that uncommon when you, you know, dealing with people's religion and out of wedlock. So it happened a lot where people would have adopted kids that were actually their own children, but they didn't tell anybody. So the idea that this child could have been a child of a sister or a cousin, no big deal. But when you take this story into the modern era, there has to be a paper trail. And until this episode, it was it was nothing I ever thought about, but there had to be a paper trail. And what we know of the Kents, what we start to find out, there I think this is a very good mystery lane start. Like we find out later how this actually happened. And I think it's a pretty stunning reveal when we find out how the adoption was worked out. But I thought this was actually very interesting. And as much as I hate Chloe and how she's acting in this episode, I don't say hate, that's a strong word, dislike Chloe is how she's acting. That is interesting, and it, I can see why she would be like, "Wait, this is weird." It's interesting, but the, the, the episode raises a lot of questions, and not, not just the practicalities. I mean, on one hand, it's weird because uh, what's interesting—I don't know if it's picked up along the show later. I don't recall that, but yeah, it, it sounds like they are setting up something which could come back later. That they they created a company, and I, I was. I started thinking maybe they they made a deal with you know sort of uh, figuratively a deal with the devil with someone who accepted money to to do something illegal for them. So yeah, okay, so that sort of explained the administrative aspect. But on the other end, it looks like the Kents are completely unprepared to answer any question. I mean, I mean they, they should have stupid anecdotes to tell. You know, it's not like Clark has been, <laughs> of course, he's been fantastical, amazing as a kid, I suppose, but he hasn't been spending 100% of his time doing heroic feats. So there must be a lot of stories 
Hey, he doesn't like peas. Yeah, beside that, to tell to, to Chloe, as you say, feed her something. Feed her stuff. Feed her a lot of stupid stories. So that's the aspect towards strangers. No, the aspect towards Clark himself, it's kind of a reverse, son, you were adopted. Because he's like, wait a minute, how was I adopted? You never wondered about that? You know? It's, I don't understand what they told Clark because it doesn't seem like he, he doesn't seem to think that he comes from an orphanage. So it's like he never wondered about that at all, but he knows he's adopted, I guess. I don't know. It's a bit confusing. Yeah. So he did, he just learned, you know, in this, in the timeline of the show, Clark just learned a few months earlier that he was an alien. Like until then, he thought he was adopted. And he was special, but he had no explanation for why. So he's only learned that he was, in fact, an alien basically three months ago, four months ago. So I can kind of buy that the idea like, well, wait, you know, how did you handle my adoption probably didn't come up. I'm, I don't have a problem with so that. So he part. knows he's an alien now already. I wasn't sure about that because I, I think the ship comes later and so on. But no, it's actually in the in the pilot. Is where he was it? Oh, yeah, I forgot yep. about that. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course, because then that's why he feels bad towards Lena because technically yeah. uh, his ship sort of crashed on her parents. Yeah. That's why he feels like he killed her parents. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but then there was that really funny line that where uh, where after Clark blows off Chloe again. And Chloe's like, not to be rude, but has your son always been this strange? Chill. It's homework. <laughs> and by the way, uh, <laughs> wait a second, because I wrote it down. Uh, yeah, this isn't a, this is not an official question. Uh, no, Chloe, because you are no one. You are a <laughs> nobody. You're not a reporter. Again, if she was 15, or even if they had put braces to Alison Max so she looked, Kind of childish with, you know, uh, the braids and so on. That would be kind of cute. Nine, like, oh, she thinks she's a reporter. That's so cute. But Addison Mac looks like an adult. So it's like, no, this is not an official question. You, 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 you are taking this like, uh, not just too seriously. Like you, you should speak about that to a mental health professional at this point. <laughs> So we uh, we get back to the Talon where we find that the handyman is unconscious. He's got blood on his head. He said he was hit from behind. Uh, again, we, we know because we watched the whole episode that uh, he's actually in on it. So I don't count this as someone going unconscious because I don't believe he was actually unconscious. I think this was all a setup. However, later we do see that the police arrived. So is it possible that he really did let the other guy hit him in the head? Because if it was like fake blood... Wouldn't the paramedics said, hey, you're not hurt. This is fake blood. So I'm not sure if he was actually hurt or if that was an act, but I'm not counting as an unconscious because we can't be sure. Yeah, you're you're right. It's weird because as we know, and it's been uh, proven repeatedly on the show, uh, the police department of Smallville is extremely thorough and competent. So they would have noticed if something was... Weird. Yeah, definitely would have hit their radar. Uh, but we see that there's been a gift left for Lex, 
and uh, good they, time to use X-ray vision, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> so may, maybe because it could have been a bomb, you know. <laughs> I guess he used it, but we don't see it. So, yeah, I guess. Uh, but it's the hand of Max Kasich. So we got the hand. We got the ring. One more time, very clear. We know it is. But the way that it shot, my my pet theory is that this wasn't like a prosthetic that they built for a prop shop. I th- I think that that guy is literally just standing there, and the camera angle just doesn't because you don't see the other side of the box. So it's just like he just put his hand there, and he's just holding really still while they film it. Uh, side note, it's completely, well, it's sort of related, but completely unrelated at the same time. I just found out via Instagram that, you know, uh, the poster of, uh, American Beauty with the hand oh. on, on, on the belly, uh, with the rose. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, the, not the body, but the hand is the hand of Christina Hendricks. I thought it was a funny trivia. <laughs> yeah, she was a hand weird. model, so the hand model do exist. They're not only David Duchovny in Zoolander. <laughs> oh, all right. So we're going to jump into our third act. Lana is beginning to question how much she knows about Lex and his past. And Clark learns that Jude Royce is dead, despite evidence to the contrary. Chloe continues to dig into Clark's past, upsetting him. In another flashback, we see dirty cop Sam Phelan arrive at Club Zero and make sure Lex was not damaged by what happened. Roy shows up at the gym and holds Lex at gunpoint until Clark arrives, and he apparently disappears. The entire Kent Farm herd has died, apparently. <laughs> this was a weird act, and we did a weird show. The, the, the acts, I mean, you know, sort of give us an, give us an excuse of the way we discuss things. I've... I don't remember the acts from Hot had to be, I mean, it's not that they're badly written, but in the way we, they, they, they structured, the acts each have two, two parts. So that's why we struggle to discuss them because it, it's always in two places at once. Not always, always, but yes, there, there usually jumps around and you have two, maybe like A, B and C stories and it just sometimes get confusing. And then just in truth, like normally when I do these episodes, I have watched the episode within like 24 hours. This one, I, the last time I watched it was like five days ago. So my, my memory's a little fuzzy, fuzzier on this one than, than others. Yeah. Same here. I, I tried watching it again today, but then I uh, got interrupted by my son. So anyway. So, but Lana's like, so we're going to be infamous before we even open. And I'm like, Lana, there's no such thing as bad press. You get this in the newspaper. That's just, I mean, it's going to help. People are going to be interested to come see where the hand was. True. Also, uh, geez, priority someone died. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Lana. It's, I know it's your big day as a 15 year old who was the quotation mark air quote co-owner of that establishment, <laughs> but someone died. That in a gruesome way, and there's a hand in your shop. So, oh, I'm already famous before I open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't wait to taste how bad your coffee is. It's already infamous. Congratulations. Well, she's going to drop it anyways, as we've learned. Uh, we get a quick little scene where Chloe is talking to Pete, trying to get dig a, dig up more dirt on Clark. We learn that Pete has a, a negative history with the Luthers, and he blames the Luthers for something that happened with his family. Like, I know that... Over the course of the show, this comes out that basically the Luthers bought the Pete's farm or Pete Ross's family's farm, but I don't know if we know that yet. I'm a little bit confused on how much we know about that, but basically the Luthers um, bought the 
Ross farm and then either pushed them out or it was a bad deal, that kind of thing. Uh, but we do get a little anecdote where we learned that when Clark was in first grade, so probably imagine Tom Welling is like nine years old, he beat up a school bully who was going to beat up Pete. And this was the anecdote that he shared with Chloe for the, for the paper. And Pete's like, I still don't understand how he did it. Like he pushed a third grader or fourth grader through a door, which, you know, might've killed him, probably put him in the hospital. Uh, but yeah. Uh, I just love how, <clears throat> I mean, I don't know. It's like in the U S uh, especially in, in the two thousands, but my son is just at the nursery at the moment. And, Absolutely anything that happened, uh, results in a form being filled by the parents of both childs involved. <laughs> so I've like signed five forms just about my son beating someone or being bit by someone. So <laughs> imagine the form for that <laughs> saying, and then <laughs> he was pushed through a door. Like, hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Smallville, you know, uh, yeah. countryside, you know, you know, if we adopt, we, we don't have very good doors. Yeah. That, yeah. It was a cardboard door. I guess the hinges were loose, rusty. Yeah. Uh, but we, here we do find out Chloe again, isn't actually a good reporter or is actually a good reporter. Again, she's 14 years old, but she's got good chops. So she found out that the adoption agency that handled Clark's adoption was Metropolis United Charities. They were only in business for six months, and they only handled one adoption. Yeah, she's a good reporter, except she's not a reporter, so she should not be doing that about her friend. Back off, please. <laughs> Seriously, read the room. But uh, but that's when Clark gets really upset at her, despite the fact that he's actually doing the same digging into Lex's past at the same time. Uh, so we get another version of the flashback where we see Sam Phelan is a back alive. This is being a flashback. He's not a ghost. And in this version, when they, we see what happens, it looks like after Lex is stabbed, Lex goes for the gun that Kasich has, and they're both holding on to it when it shoots Kasich. So that's sort of like the newer version that it wasn't that Lex shot him. It's that Lex was fighting for the gun and Kasich and Lex both shot him. Uh, so Sam takes control of the scene, starts talk, questioning the witnesses. He tells Lex, you were never here. You won't be mentioned in the papers. Just basically, but you can never talk to Amanda again. You can never talk to Max again. They have to be cut out of your life. And he gives uh, Lex a piece of paper that says, call this number. He'll fix you up, which I can only assume is Toby. From one of the recent episodes, we learned that uh, Lex has a, a, a on-the-down-low doctor who fixes him up when he gets hurt. I have to assume that this is where he meets Toby. Might be, yeah. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, this flashback was when uh, my wife entered the room as I was watching and recognized uh, the actor from Parker Lewis because I had not. Uh, and right then I googled him uh, on IMDb and I found out that he plays also in a movie called Man's Keto. That's a side note, but that sounds very interesting. Hmm. Interesting, yes. Um so now we're at the gym and Lex is working out and he's got his his uh, head of security there who's trying to track down Amanda but doesn't seem to be able to. And we get a moment where there's a gun put to the back of Lex's head. 
I was a hundred percent sure this was going to be the Amanda reveal that it was going to be Amanda who's the one holding the gun, but in fact it's not. It's actually quote unquote Jude Royce, and you know basically Lex uh, they're having a conversation, goes back and forth again. I think I'm mixing up again. I think he shows up before we get the flashback, but Clark shows up at the gym. And can hear what sounds to be like a gun cocking. So that's when he like rushes in and tries to like, you know, catch everybody in the act and save Lex. But Jude is literally just gone. He like disappeared. Like he teleported out of there, which really makes it feel like it's a supernatural situation. Like Jude is actually dead and this is a ghost of some form because it makes no sense that he would be able to pull a Batman and just disappear without a trace and that quick. But he when he's actually just a guy. Like, I feel like this was a kind of a misdirect. Yeah, especially with, I, I guess, I don't know, maybe, would that be Lex conscience? So um, having a, a kind of hallucination? I don't know. No, he was really there. It wasn't just yeah. a hallucination. He was actually there, but he managed to disappear and get out of the gym without anyone seeing or hearing him, including someone who has x-ray vision. If he had just looked around. Well, sp- Let's not go into spoilers, but we, we really need to discuss this Jude character. <laughs> and what, what are his stakes in the situation and how much he... Yeah, he seems very committed to the situation. Yeah, he's definitely a method actor. <laughs> yes, for sure. I guess it's that. <laughs> but, so here we have another bit of information that seems a little bit weird to me is... so. So Clark has a copy of the newspaper article or one of the newspaper articles about the incident. And he says, so the official story is that Jude shot Kasich and then Kasich shot Royce. But in the scene that we saw, Jude didn't shoot anybody. He stabbed Lex with a knife. So does that mean that Sam Phelan shot Kasich and planted a gun on Royce? And that was part of the cover up? Uh, I guess, yeah. I mean, wow, it's uh, a lie within a lie within a lie, isn't it? Will we find out more later? Maybe, probably. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I guess I, I did not pick that. For me, the 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 official story would have been that Kazi, the the one we see at the beginning, that Kazi uh, shot Jude in self defense, or in because of the circumstances, I did not realize that on top of that, the corrupt cop would have planted a, a gun and they would have accused Jude of, of shooting as well. So, so this is a, this is a little bit weird. So again, I watch these shows with closed captioning on one, cause I'm, am hard of hearing. And two, it's just, you know, I like to do that. And it's very clear that the way Clark says, Kasich was shot and then killed Royce. But I almost wonder if that was like a flubbed line and it should have been Kasich shot and killed Royce. Because if that's what it was said, then that would make sense. But the way he says it, it sounds like Kasich was shot and then he killed Royce. So I don't know if it's just like a love, like a flubbed line that people didn't catch or if the official story is that Jude shot Kasich, me and Sam Phelan shot him and then planted a gun. Uh, I kind of like to think that that's what happened because it just makes me like Sam Phelan a little bit more that like that's the level he went to is he carried an unregistered gun. He went out back and shot Kasich in the arm. Like it was like a very big 
cover up. I just, I don't know. It makes me, makes me happy to think that's what happened. Well, when you work for Lionel Luto, uh, you know, you, you, you do it 100% or you don't. That's right. You don't know half measures. Uh, and then my last note for this, um, scene is I really like the natural lighting of the scene of them outside just before they, before they find all the cows are dead. Like it's just, look, it feels to me like they just literally went outside. It was just getting ready to storm and they shot it just out in the open. And I just, I love the way that scene looks. It doesn't match anything in the show, but I really enjoy it. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good, uh, smoothie moment when you have those, those sort of things. So I kind of dominated there, but did you have anything in the third act you wanted to talk about? Uh, no, no, not really. I mean, let's move forward where, where the meat is. Okay. Uh, so then we can jump into the fourth act where we find out that all the Kent's cows have been killed by chemicals that are leaking from Luther Court barrels left on their property. Jude poses one of the CEP, which is like their version of the Environmental Protection Agency, and takes less Lex hostage after tasing him with apparently a 12 gun, 12 gauge shotgun. He then asks him for the truth about what happened at Club Zero and just before shooting him is shot himself by Mr. Handyman guy. So did you have anything in the fourth act you wanted to talk about? I mean, <laughs> what is supposed to be in those barrels? The speed at which they, they would kill those cows. I mean, what, what did, what did Jude and Handyman guy do to those cows. I mean, it's, it's, this operation is really heavy on resources, bringing the barrels, piercing them, not being noticed by anyone, uh, killing the cows. I guess they would, they would have stabbed them individually with a, with a, a needle, with another component, because I don't think there's any, I mean, if, if it's that bad for a cow, a, a cow, uh, do you, I mean, I mean, I mean, uh, unless they were wearing, you know, full hazmat suits around when they they drip those those barrels. I mean, yeah, uh, handyman guy, uh, he sure is handy. <laughs> yeah, this is like black ops government level, uh, you know, operations here. Like you said, these two guys that are working together, which we will learn shortly, are working together, managed to get Luther Corp toxic materials out of somewhere, get that to the Kent farm, leak it on the farm, and nobody noticed. And it killed every cow in the field, which, like you said, either they had to go around and actually inject them with something, or that is such a caustic chemical that it should have killed everything, like in a mile radius, like people, animals, plants. Like, it's crazy how quickly that would how powerful that would have to be of a toxic chemical to work that fast to kill literally every cow in their herd. It makes no sense. It, but again, it, it adds to this, like, is this supernatural? But it's not. When, when you know what actually happens, none of this makes any sense. I mean, what would I have been, if I was trying really to retrofit the story to make some sense out of uh, the resources they have, it would have been interesting if Towards the end, Lionel Luther would have shown up, you know, and it would have been sort of a convoluted lesson he prepared for Alex saying, <laughs> you know, you're so smart, but remember that time I saved you? Look how I can take everything back from you. Right. Because he would, he would have the resources of doing that. I mean, it, it would still be sort of daft, but at least it, I guess it would make sense in terms of 
capacity for doing stuff. Mm -hmm. So we haven't talked a whole lot about the acting in this particular episode, but I really liked Michael Rosenbaum's visible trepidation before he goes and talks to the Kents. You know, he knows he didn't do this. He knows it wasn't his fault. He knows something else is going on. But he also knows that the Kents, particularly Jonathan, already doesn't like him. And he's going to take the blame for this. But he just, as he walks up, you can see that sort of resignation that he doesn't want to have this conversation. And then he comes up and, of course, he's like, I'm sorry. You know, I don't know how this happened. I'm going to make it right. I just think Michael Rosenbaum did a really, really good job there and how he portrayed that again, trepidation. And then I have a note here. Is it good writing or is it bad writing that Jonathan literally says money doesn't solve all your problems when this is exactly what is happening in this episode? Lex's money tried to solve a problem, but it came back to haunt him. Like, is that like a good writing or is that bad writing? Oh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, Smallville is, I mean, I, I, I like Smallville. I'm not the, biggest fan but i find it fascinating how you got different levels of quality here and there and i definitely put the i definitely put the performance above the script and i think the characters the the actors pull it off and by putting it off they make it a good line because it works on on different level, like it's a it's sort of a curse of something which might happen later. Although yeah, it might be something like okay, this is my this might be you might be solving this one this time with your money, but it won't work all the time. Mm -hmm. Or it could be sort of Jonathan being, you know, being Jonathan and sort of stubborn to the point of you know saying this this cloud is blue although the cloud is clearly white because Jonathan thinks that they should be blue and and so on I think it I love this kind of scene because I, I mean it the relationship between Lex and Jonathan is is very it's simple on one hand on the other hand there are, there are layers you know you the mm -hmm. Lex definitely oddly look up to Jonathan, he would like to be recognized by Jonathan somehow, and uh, you, you could have a parallel world where Jonathan has been Jonathan hasn't been a complete prick towards uh, Lex, and and Lex probably might have become someone better just because uh, Jonathan would have taken him under his wing, but uh, instead of that, uh, Jonathan is like, no, get get out, <laughs> get away. Well, so See, I find this very interesting, though. And so, uh, again, potential spoilers. I know we do this beginning, there's potential spoilers, but this is very much a spoiler. What we will learn much later is that Lionel Luther was behind the adoption of Clark. Like, oh. they went, to, they went to Lionel, and Lionel was able to use his money and influence to set up a fake charity and handle the adoption. So, so we, what we will learn later is that Lionel is very much aware that Clark is not who they think he is, you know, like what the world is. So there's part of me that wonders if uh, some of this animosity between Jonathan and Lex is because they don't want to become close to bring Lionel. Like they don't want Lionel in their circle because they are afraid that, that Lionel will say, you know, we never really did talk much about the whole adoption with Clark. Where did he come from? So it's almost like they're trying to keep Lex away to keep Lionel away. 
And I just wonder if that's part of it or not. It's interesting to think of. Got a weird flashback. I would have I would have to look up which episode that was, but I'm tempted to ask you to book me up for a future episode. I believe that there was a scene. <laughs> I don't remember if the scene was interesting or creepy, but I remember a scene after. I believe it's after Jonathan's passing. Something happens, maybe a doppelganger or something like that. But there's a seduction scene between Lionel and uh, Martha Kent. And I'd really like to be back for that episode, but I will have to, to look up which episode it was. Yeah. Well, there's, there's several actually. There's, uh, after, after Jonathan passes Lionel, there's a period of time where Lionel knows Clark's secret and is on, on, on his side and is trying to protect him from Lex and him and Martha get very close. And there's several scenes that lean towards maybe romantic aspirations, but. Um, so then we see, well, so Chloe's there taking pictures because Chloe's Chloe, which will become important later. Lex says he needs to go talk to the CEP guy. Turns out it's Jude Royce, sort of, because it's not really, but we'll learn that in a minute. And Lex gets tased. When he gets tased, he flies backwards like 12 feet unconscious. I didn't know that tasers carried that kind of kick, and I'm saying that facetiously. They don't. If you get tased, you fall down. You don't get thrown back, at least as far as I know. Maybe it's a special taser. We don't know. It's <laughs> maybe it's a kryptonite taser. There's there's not much kryptonite in this episode. It's yeah. it's a good thing, and at the same time, it's like oh, no kryptonite. The doors in Smallville are very flimsy, but the tasers in Smallville carry a big wallop. Uh, but that is our f- official someone goes unconscious moment of this episode because he clearly goes unconscious after the taser. Chloe comes back later and apologizes for digging into Clark's life. They have a little bit of a moment. She has some pictures developed that she has taken, and she says, you know, maybe your parents can use them for the uh, insurance. And then we see that she took a picture, a very clear, almost glamour shot-esque picture of Jude Royce in the face, posing as a CEP agent, which is how Clark knows that he has got Lex somewhere. Yeah, she's very good with her camera. I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not impressed by that camera. Each time it's on screen, I'm like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, very old. Well, no, for by all standards, very old digital camera. I would be more impressed if she had, you know, a, a nice film camera, you, you know, mm. the, the sort of things you see uh, Jimmy Olsen later wield. Um, but, uh, she's definitely good with it because that's a, a very good shot. So they, uh, so they dig in and they find an address for this guy. His name's like John Smith or something. And they know it's an alias. And, um, Clark literally runs to Metropolis. Like, uh, it's not expressed in the show, but that's clearly what happened, right? Is he took off and zoomed to, to Metropolis, which is again, one of our questions about did Clark use his powers irresponsibly? Cause it's never addressed in the show. So it's never addressed later. There's no moment when in the next. How episode. did you get here? Like you just saved Lex's life. How did you get all the way to Metropolis without a vehicle? And like, like there's never, it never circles back around where someone says, yeah, Clark showed up and saved me at four o'clock. And Chloe's like, but he was with me at three 15. How did he get to Metropolis in 12? You know, like that never is addressed, but it, it could be an irresponsible use of powers. Because it's so blatant. If if only people talked to each other, they would have figured this one out. Yeah, I think it would have been more interesting if, you know, sort of a the blur scenario. If Clark would have showed up, gotten rid of uh, handyman, and legs being you know uh, partially tortured or hanging uh, from the ceiling, would have noticed someone 
in you know in a hazy way and be like Clark is that you and 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 then he would have you know, we could have had other episodes when Lex is investigating that and he's kind of making the connection with uh the other time Clark saved him f- from his car you know it could be an element towards Lex investigating even further right Clark Kent but uh, yeah instead it's like hello I'm there oh uh, <laughs> good to see you thanks I guess yeah, so actually, I, I might retroactively change that and say, no, actually, yes, Clark did use his powers irresponsibly, because you're right, he should have blurred in, saved Lex, and then just left. Like, he didn't need to stick around and be there as Clark. So Clark zooms off to the Metropolis, goes to the address that Chloe gives him, and arrives just as the police are bringing out a body in a body bag. Clark uses x-ray vision, and it's missing its right hand, so he puts together that this is Max Kasich. This is the body of Max, who's dead. His arm cut off before, after, we don't know. But then he asks the cop, he's like, hey, did you find anybody else in there? And the clock says, or the cop says, sorry, I can't comment on an ongoing investigation. Just kidding. The Metropolis police are just as bad as Smallville police. He's like, no, no, nobody else is in there. Random person on the street. Um, and then Clark's like, uh, I wish I could get to Club Zero. And the guy's like, well, it closed, but it's here's a, a warehouse down on 78th or whatever. And then we cut back over. That's where we see Michael Rosenbaum as Lex. He He's a handsome man. He does not look healthy being upside down for that long. Like, he looks unwell. Michael, I find you got such unreasonable standards regarding the, the beauty of actors. I mean, what do you think you would look like being a hang upside down? M- Michael Rosenbaum is gorgeous, and he's doing his best when he's being hanging upside down. So what, actually, this is going to be a quick tangent, but uh, what actually this makes reminds me of is I also watched Better Call Saul, which I think is one of the best TV shows like ever. And there was an episode, not this most recent season, maybe even two seasons back, where there's a couple people that are hung upside down they're being threatened. And I listened to a podcast by the creators of Better Call Saul. They talk about that episode and the way the rules are written, you're only allowed to have someone upside down for like 45 seconds. Wow. So they talked about the, the difficulty of, of filming that scene with being able to only been able to have them upside down that long, having to do multiple takes and cuts and, and everything for the actor's safety. I'm willing to bet that Michael Rosenbaum was hung upside down well longer than 45 seconds because part of the reason he looks so bad is his face looks so puffy because all the blood is collected in his head. Like I don't, I don't doubt that he was actually upside down for quite a long time in that scene. Well, a couple of things. I mean, I'm not aware of the details, but, uh, Smallville was shot in Vancouver. Yeah. And I do know that uh, one of the reasons a lot of things are shot in Vancouver is not just taxes, uh, but also a lot of the union rules for actors and technicians are m- much more lenient than they are in the US. I, I know, I mean, from listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum that, uh, some of the actors, uh, on show in Vancouver are, when you start a role in one of those shows, uh, the casting agent sort of have to, has to ask you, so do you want the US or Canadian arrangements? 
And you would be the biggest idiot in the world to accept the Canadian arrangement as an actor because you, in terms of what you're being paid and your, what the, the protection you benefit from, it's way, way, way lower, lower than uh, what you have in the US. I also know that, uh, on the shooting of Smallville, Michael Rosenblum ended up in situation in which he feared for his life. I think he, he almost got drowned uh shooting a scene underwater uh so so i think you're right i think he probably has been hanging upside down for quite a while yeah i mean that, that's no that's no you know coming back more recently that's that's why michael rosenbaum is not so eager to go back to to what well, that's first that's why he left at some point and second that's why he's not so eager to to shoot things with CW again uh, sadly and that's why he was not in uh, on crisis in in infinite earth yes though uh, i think you you sent it to me uh at the time of recording this episode won't be out for months but at the time of recording they just announced that tom Michael and Kristen are going to do a virtual reunion. The three of them from Smallville are going to do a virtual reunion for some sort of charity thing. Oh, but they, they, do, they actually do it on a regular basis in a comedy club uh, in LA. Oh. So the, the actors get along just fine. It's just uh, CW and some of the actors are not getting along so fine. Oh. So, so Michael Rosenblum uh, apparently doesn't have any issue with the the character of Lex Luthor or performing him or meeting the fans is just when he was called for crisis. It's a sign of, Oh yeah. Yeah. He, he was yeah, just, was, thought, like okay, thing. you need to show up. Uh, you will need to show up on that day. Are you willing to do it? And it was like, okay, uh, what's, what's actually the, the rule? Were well, you Lex? That's it. Yeah. Do you have lines? How much am I going to be paid? Oh, no information. You just say you will do it. It's like, um, yeah, no, I won't do it with, without more information thank you very much the others did but yeah you know um so we kind of end this act we're back where we actually started lex is upside down we see the quote-unquote jude royce character there we have that same scene where he pulls the gun back like he's going to shoot him but this time we get to see what happens when we hear the gunshot and rather than jude shooting lex mr handyman shoots jude and kills him uh, so then we jump into our fifth and final act. Lex finally reveals the actual truth, we think, about what happened at Club Zero, that Amanda was the one who killed Jude. He learns that she is the sister of the handyman guy and killed herself, having never actually recovered from what happened that night. Clark arrives to save the day, and we end on the Talon's grand opening. So as much as it doesn't make sense to me, I do kind of like Clark's run back to the door and pretend he just arrived bit. So he zooms in, takes out the handyman, throws a couch under Lex to catch him, and then he literally like runs back to the door and then turns around and like jogs in at normal speed like, hey, what's going on? And So it's even worse than I remember. He could have just not returned. If he had yes. not shown up at the door, it would have been fine. Yeah, Lex was a save. The other guy was unconscious. He could have just left, maybe hung around just to make sure that Lex, you know, didn't die, didn't break his neck the way he fell, or, you know, yell at a cop, say, hey, you need to check that out. But the fact that he sticks around makes no sense. So we learn ultimately, again, if this is to be believed, that Amanda is actually the one that shot Jude. So when Lex told Phelan in the second flashback version, that he and Kasich together shot Royce 
and got Sam to use his dad's money and protect him. He was actually protecting Amanda. So he was trying to be a good guy. He left Amanda's part out of it. He lied to the person who was going to fix that so that Amanda would not get in trouble more so than himself. So which again goes back to Lex being a good guy. Cause this, this um, club zero thing has been set up throughout multiple episodes. This was like a big deal. This was a big reason why Lex is in Smallville. He had to leave Metropolis. You know, it was like, it was like this big, terrible secret, but ultimately he was a hero. He did a good thing. It just, out of his control, which again, we can argue the way he chose to do it was somewhat theatrical and probably set him up for failure. But ultimately, this is a story of Lex being a good guy, right? Or is it? Or is it though? Is it though? Is it true? Is it, is it just convenient for Lex to say, no, that, that's Amanda actually. I was protecting her. Uh, yeah, she cannot testify about that. How convenient is that? So it's interesting. I like that you actually don't know. And I don't remember what was in the performance of Michael Rosenbaum in that scene, which made me think, huh, it doesn't feel so clearly cut. It could be, could be another lie. Yeah. And that's the thing about it is that we don't know. Like, I think the, I think the episode plays like it's, he's a good guy. But we can't trust that this is the actual truth. Even though it's the the last one, it's also the one that's most likely to keep him safe in that situation because he he basically removes his culpability and makes it Amanda. This guy is here because Amanda's his sister and he wants revenge for her. And he learns that Amanda's actually the one that shot him. Like It puts Lex in a really good light. So can we trust that it's the truth? And I think, no, I don't think we can. I don't think we know which is the actual truth. Yeah, no. And, and again, the first flashback, uh, which shows you more than the, the shooting, which shows you them arri- Lex arriving with Amanda and inter- interacting with Kazish, we know that the shooting, at least in that one, is untruth. So we could assume that the very first scene is untruth as well. So Lex could have been, the, you know, just the dialogue could be different with Lex saying, come on, you're going to have fun. And Amanda being like, no, I don't really want to come. Uh, no, uh, okay, I feel forced. You know, it. The, the, if you take the first scene and start picturing the old scene from the beginning, from the entrance being slightly different, everything takes a different turn. You you have to question every part of it. You can't trust it. I feel like the show wants us to. Like, I feel like the show wants us to believe that that last scene is the truth. But I don't think the show earned that. I think it's still up in the air, which is the truth. And did we see the truth at all? And I, if if I'm right, and that's what the show wants us to believe, I think the show failed in that regard. Um, maybe they did want us to question it and they did a good job, but my interpretation is that they wanted us to think that was the truth, but I don't think they earned it as being unequivocally the truth. Again, I find performances are in, in Smallville are often better than, than the script and the, not, not just the script, but the, the complete arcs, the way they're written in the show. I think the, the, the actors do a, a very good job making us believe in those characters than the than the script strictly does. Mm-hmm. No, I, again, I've said many times like the show, the cast on the show is incredible and probably better than the show deserves. 
so at the end of the episode, we get Clark going to the Talon's grand opening. Clark has an incredibly thoughtful gift that he found of the Talon's grand opening in his attic for some reason. I don't know. Convenient. <laughs> and then we have the actual last part of the scene or episode is Chloe. She's at her computer. She's at the torch and she's getting ready to delete the file that she had on Clark and the adoption but she just can't do it at the last second. She clicks instead of delete, she clicks save. And yes, dear listener, this will come back later. Yeah. At the same time, she hit erase. The files would just be in the bin on her computer. So maybe what we should have seen is her click erase and then go to the bin and be like, oh, do you empty my bin or not? I think I agree with you, <laughs> but I, I wonder if part of the thought is this was 2002 and maybe people weren't as familiar with Mac computers and that people wouldn't realize that. <laughs> it's, because mean, the whole mouse going side to side was not compelling yeah. to me at all. <laughs> it's an empty bin. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, she could throw the hard drive in a dramatic fashion in a, in a fire or something. <laughs> yeah, a good, nice floppy disk, like. She would throw the floppy disk in the fire or, or not. I'm not sure about that. So, final thoughts on the episode. Anything overall? Well, in a way, uh, coming back from Hothead, I think it, the episode... Well, first of all, uh, I love the episode. I thought it was a very good episode. I think it's um, very interesting to have an episode centered on Lex. Uh, I do know that uh, there's been a setup for this episode, so it's nice to see it pay off. However... Like Hothead, what I find uh, a bit of a missed opportunity is that you got enough here to last at least half a season. You know, they, they did set up things, but it's, if I remember correctly, it's a, it's a reference. It's a, it's a card. You got the name of the club and you wonder what it is. But this villain here, especially with the amount of resources and he seems to have, it would have been, it could have been a villain for half a season or a whole season, and that would have been more interesting, I think. It's it's interesting in comparison. I, I cannot help to compare each time with Buffy. And uh, the first season of Buffy, uh, it's very monster of the week, but you still do have the master, and he does stuff. He comes back, and then he's the big villain at the end of the season. Here, it would have been very cool if Handyman uh, would have showed up and you know, tortured, even just the content of this episode, but distributed along three or four episodes, and you have this big build-up. I don't understand, like they did with Hothead, it could have been a build-up with Riley, uh, not Riley, sorry, Whitney. Uh, you know, with Whitney, they could have built up the thing with Clark being part of the team for several episodes and then deciding to leave rather than smash it all in a, in a single episode. I think this episode here could have been spread out a bit, you know, uh, take your time with it rather than, than rush it like that. No, I, I agree. And I, that's probably just, you know, TV in the early 2000s was a different animal than it is now. But there's a lot of storylines in this show that deserve more than one 45-minute episode and would have been much better for it. But that's just not the way they did things. At least not at CW. Because again, yeah. it's interesting. It's a transition time in television, and you had a 
a bit earlier, you had Deep Space Nine, who was sort of the first Star Trek also, not being an anthology show, not being a show that you can catch a single episode and still understand what is going on within this episode, and everything is sort of resolved by the end of the, ep- the episode. Smallville, I guess it was kind of a bit behind with more, slightly more edgy shows of the times, but uh, it's starting to happen because they still do leave clues, but yeah, it's kind of an in-between. Uh, and then lastly here, my man versus Superman thesis question. So, again, again, I've said this now, 14 episodes. I feel like that's the overall thesis of the show is Clark Man versus Superman. And so how would you weigh this episode in that debate? Do you think this was a man episode, a Superman episode, a man versus Superman episode? Just how do you think the show feels in, through that lens? I don't know. It's It felt like it was a Lex Luthor episode. Right? Clark feels like he's barely in it. I mean, there's the story of the orphanage. But, uh, it's mainly there to, to give the, that sense of irony. Uh, yeah, we, we missed, uh, the, the, the dialogue between Lex and, uh, and Clark. How, yeah, the, the, I don't remember what was the exact line, but I really love the parallel between the two. So, um, I don't know about this one. I, from Clark's point of view, is he man of Superman? So I agree that this is definitely a Lex episode, but I, th- I think this is a man versus Superman episode because it deals with Clark's adoption. Clark just wants to be normal. Yeah. But he can't be because there are secrets in his past that even he doesn't know about because he isn't actually normal. So this fact that he has this adoption that he didn't know about or the the mystery behind the adoption, Chloe starts to dig in. His parents have not been truthful. He still doesn't learn the whole truth. I just think it 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 continues on the this is what he wants, but these things keep getting in the way, then they're beyond his control. Yeah, yeah, you're right. All right, so, Caleb, we're at the point where you can now get to ask your Pass the Torch question for our next co-host. So what do you want to ask? So here's my question. Something truly dreadful happened at Club Zero three years ago, and it was your fault. Thankfully, Lex Luthor was there and cleaned the slate, saving you from embarrassment or worst. Tell us. What happened at Club Zero three years ago? So let's go ahead and sign off. So, Caleb, tell everybody where they can get a hold of you, find out other things that you're a part of, listen to you, find you on the Internet, all the kind of good stuff. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. Uh, I was Kaloum. I'm When I'm not a guest on Farm to Fable, I am the host and producer of the Rollist podcast, a broadly London-based show of tabletop RPG fans across the channel, the pond, and beyond. That that includes Dungeons and Dragons, if you are in this sort of hobby. If you're not, I believe it's still a good show to introduce you to that hobby and the community, and it's uh, it's fun to listen to. If you're more into movies and TV reviews, I do curate for Michael and the RPG Academy something called the RPG Academy Film Studies, in which we review a movie from the point of view of tabletop role-playing game. And I believe we're about to record new episodes, but uh, in the meantime, you can hear about Clue, Delicatessen, Brotherhood of the Wolf, uh, a bunch District 9, a bunch of uh, uh, cool movies, and uh, we discuss how, what we can do in tabletop role-playing games with them. So you, might, well, you should do a Superman movie in there. Yeah. That certainly could be. Maybe maybe we do Superman Returns, since we both seem to like oh, it. Yeah. Well, you can find all of that uh, on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Uh, and you can find me at RollistPod. So that's uh, French for role player. It's 
R O L I S T E S P O D. And you, with that, you can find me on Twitter. You can find my website. You can find me on TikTok and Instagram. And, uh, yeah, I hope you will meet there and that we'll meet again, uh, in Farm to Fable. As for myself, again, Michael at the RPG Academy. Mostly what I do is about everything there other than Farm to Fable, which has its own website, has its own Facebook, has its own Twitter. All that's in the show notes. Uh, just a reminder that we're still trying to get to a 100 iTunes reviews US or 150 total. My last count had us at nine. And for only being out for a couple of weeks, that's not that's not a bad start. But we still got a ways to go. Uh, and then just a reminder to please stay and listen for the scoreboard after the credits. Hey, I've been podcasting for almost five years and I've got 13 reviews in, in the UK for my show. So nine, uh, it's pretty good after two episodes. Yeah, I think I, I think all eight of them are people I know. And then you're the one, you're number nine in the UK. Well, I cannot even manage to convince people I know to write reviews. So <laughs> what does that mean? Farm to Fable is a Smallville rewatch fan cast and is not officially affiliated with DC Comics, Warner Brothers Television, the CW Network, or any other owners of Smallville and or its related source materials. As such, these companies retain sole ownership of all symbols, images, names, logos, and other proprietary material related to Smallville. Our use of logos, images, names, likenesses, and sound clips are being used under the Fair Use Guidelines. Our logo was created by Michael Waldschlager II. You can find Michael on Twitter at LoserMLW. Farm to Fable is written, edited, and produced by me, Michael Ross, with additional input by weekly co-hosts as credited in each episode's show notes. And now, let's check the scoreboard. Total number of vehicles wrecked. We're still at 20. We have three by Meteor Strike, one by driving into a Meteor Strike zone, one by driving off of a bridge. One due to Bug Swarm, one due to Meteor Freak Attack, which was Bug Boy, one by Pyrokinesis, one which was hit by Tina as Clark while trying to run down Martha in the Kent truck, one when Clark is tossed onto it from the barn loft by Tina, one when Whitney swerves to miss Sean and runs off the road, one when Clark throws young Harry across a parking lot onto a car, smashing the roof and blowing out the windows, one when Jody hits a terribly rendered CGI deer with her car. One, when Clark drops a safe on it from the fifth floor. One, blows up after being set on fire. One, is crushed by fallen body. One, flips side over side by Eric while chasing Brent. One, when Clark is thrown onto it by Eric, smashing the hood and blowing out the windows. And two, police cars are found destroyed. One on fire, one thrown through the roof of a house by Eric, though this happens off screen. Total number of times a person has been knocked unconscious. We are now at 22. Lex has been knocked unconscious five times. One, when he drove off a bridge. Twice, he was knocked unconscious by Jeff Palmer. Once, he was knocked out by Clark after being mind-whammied. And then won this episode by being tasered by fake Jude Royce. Whitney has been knocked unconscious twice. Once, when he wrecked his truck due to Bug Boy attack. And then again later, when he's thrown into a horse stall by Bug Boy. Lana has been knocked unconscious four times. First happens off screen, but we do find her in a cocoon of some sort. She's later choked out by Tina, shapeshifted as Whitney, and then asphyxiation from being entombed by Tina. And then one when she is thrown from her horse. Principal Quan has been knocked unconscious once from being in a car on fire. Clark's been knocked unconscious twice. Once when he was given the deep freeze by Sean Kelvin, and then again when he is tossed onto a car by Eric after Eric stole his powers. Martha has been knocked unconscious once when she was buried alive 
by Corn in a corn silo. Petey has been knocked unconscious once when he's thrown to the floor by Jody. Jody was knocked unconscious once when her greenhouse exploded. Jeff Palmer was knocked unconscious once when he's thrown into scaffolding while fighting with Clark. Cal Tippett was knocked unconscious twice, once by being knocked back into his trail by Clark, and then later after being shot by a mind-controlled deputy sheriff. Chloe's been unconscious once uh, after falling three stories from Luther Mansion. Total number of times someone goes to the hospital, still at eight. One, Quan, though it happens off screen. One, young Harry, if he's taken there for observation. One, Jody, happens off screen. One, Earl, after jittering at the Kent farm. One, Jeff Palmer, though it does happen off screen after fighting with Clark. One, Clark, taken to the hospital after his run-in with Eric. One, Eric, being loaded onto an ambulance after transferring his powers back to Clark. And then Chloe, after she fell three stories from the Luther Mansion. And the total number of times Clark tells her show someone other than Lana's abilities remains at 13 with an asterisk. 